Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues that surrounded the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Frenita, hello. It's Hi. so good to see you. Really good to see you, too. Um, we're on the other side, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. That's exactly what I was thinking. We're, 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 we're on the other side, sort of, right? I mean, we're at the other side of Election Day. We're at the other side of the network's projecting a winner. We're not quite yet on the other side of finality. Right. We're not quite in the clear. Um, There's still some some things that we have to deal with as we uh, approach Inauguration Day in a couple months. But it it still feels good to have the the big event behind us, though. Yes. Yeah, I I think that's right. I, I, I oscillate between certain feelings of positivity and certain feelings of real concern. I mean, I'm very positive about the fact that we pulled off this election in the pan- year of the pandemic. Um, you know, I was worried, as given our previous podcast, that just our infrastructure couldn't handle, you know, the, the challenges of all the vote by mail and long lines and COVID and safe distancing. And, you know, despite blemishes, it does seem like as a matter of casting ballots, you know, none of the real horribles happened. We didn't have a cyber attack that wiped out the electrical grid in Detroit, as some of in our community were worried about. I mean, much less lesser blemishes. So that was a good news uh, story. Um, so what, do you, what are your feelings? I mean, it sounds like you're feeling positive about some things, too. So I am, but I have to be honest and say a lot of my positivity came in the last few days, not necessarily in the immediate wake of Election Day. Um, So so the good news uh, and I think my good news kind of coincides with yours. I had some concerns about infrastructure and turnout um, and whether or not election officials would be able to handle it. Not not because they wouldn't try their best. It's just, I mean, this year is just so unprecedented in many ways, right? Just north of 150 pe- million people voted in this election. So I really, and of course, we didn't know that going in, but we knew it would be a lot. It's a, it was a high interest election. Um, and so I was really pleased, just the, the professionalism and the attention to detail and the desire to get it right, I think, really came across with election officials. Um, and it could be that they were on notice, right? We spent all summer talking about potential issues. People in the media did. Um, if you follow the president on Twitter, you kind of knew where he was going, right? And so I think they prepared accordingly. And so that is why uh, I think things went as best as could we could have hoped for. Um, that being said, I did have some disappointments coming out of the election. I don't want to overshadow historic turnout. I don't want to overshadow the fact that we pulled off an election in the middle of a global pandemic. But I did find a lot of the litigation leading up to election day, some of it very disheartening, right? Some of it that was designed to put barriers in front of people and make it difficult for them to vote. And um, some some of which was uh, made it difficult for election officials to address some of the barriers. Um, I, I just felt like, you know, it's, it's already hard enough that we have to pull off an election in the middle of a pandemic 
why are we still focused on trying to suppress the vote? We as a, you know, elected officials in society. And so I found that very disheartening. And I was actually quite mad about that in the days after the election, uh, maybe irrationally. So given that turnout was so high. But, you know, when I got the, got the news that we had reached, I think at that point it was like 145 million. But of course, they are sort of trying to get a, a final tally of how many people participated. All I could think about was it could have been so much higher if, you know, for example, the Florida state legislature didn't pass a statute that required payment of all fines and fees in Florida. Right. That people with felony convictions have been able to, to participate. And I just kind of went in my head and thought about all of the different instances we had over the last seven or eight months where a to make it easier to vote were beat back and um and so you know my optimism is it really is a recent vintage i had to have a piece about <laughs> my feelings regarding you know efforts to suppress the vote which i was still mad about on election day uh-huh so when you said you were positive in the last couple of days what what in the last you know few days has, has improved your moods so i don't know if it was about any particular event that improved my mood. Um, maybe I felt that on one level, I felt like my anger was a little bit disrespectful <laughs> to election officials who really did try to like do their best. Um, and so, you know, one thing I thought about in recent days is that my anger needs to be more targeted towards state officials who tried to make it more difficult to vote and not um malign those who tried to make sure our process worked and that we have a clear winner and all the things we care about in a mature democracy um but it also made me realize that we have to play the long game right we have to look beyond this election and thinking about what participation means in this country and that's not something we can solve right now um and so it's okay to celebrate the win right the fact that we were able to do this really incredible thing right 150 million people turned out that's huge uh, but also make plans. Um, and so I decided to plan. You know, I have a little journal. I write down all the things I want to do to make voting easier for people in 2022. Um, I think if more people take an active role in that sense and, you know, 2022 can look just as remarkable as this year. Maybe not in absolute numbers, but just in, in terms of percentage and increased turnout, increased engagement, increased activism. Like it just, you know, we have to start thinking about these things on long term. Um, and, and of course, there are people who already do that, right? You know, voting rights advocates, if you are a person who litigates voting rights cases, you can't help but take the, the long view, <laughs> given how many defeats you have in court, right? And so um, in some ways, my positivity was me modifying my, my own attitude about the election and not being so negative um, and instead deciding to celebrate the positive while planning on, and, and doing my, on how I can do my part in order to increase voter turnout and engagement. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I hate to be the uh, downer to the party because uh, I think with each passing day, you know, I'm getting more concerned by um, what I perceive as the, the incapacity of our system to do a very good job achieving finality and closure. And, um, you know, I do think this is a somewhat complicated story that the public hasn't been as prepared for as maybe it should have been by the media and other outlets, because I I continue to have in mind that there are really two truths that exist simultaneously with respect to how we achieve closure in an election. One truth is the legal truth uh, and all the rules for getting an official result, and that's on such a slower uh, timetable 
than what has traditionally been our cultural truth. Uh, you know, culturally, we usually have these network projections. Again, they usually come on election night. This year, it came on the Saturday after election day. And then normally, culturally, the losing candidate based on the projections concedes defeat, which is the basis for the winning candidate to declare victory. Um, this time, the victory speech came, you know, without the concession speech because of understandable expectations that the concession speech was never going to come anyway. And so why not declare victory when the networks were all saying it was over? But it is also true as a legal proposition that the networks have no official role. And so I've been, you know, I, I certainly believe that President-elect Biden is President-elect Biden. And as I've written in a piece for the Washington Post, he will be inaugurated on on January 20th. I'm fully confident about that. And that will, of course, be after the legal process is complete. Um, but, you know, this whole process of uh, the opposition party, as it were, reacting um, to his declaration of victory has troubled me. Um, on the one hand, I think that those in the Republican Party who say there's no official result yet are correct. I mean, until we get certification and and until we have the Electoral College meeting, again, all of this is at the level of the networks is unofficial. I, I thought former President Bush had a really great statement on Sunday where he was able to simultaneously capture both truths. So he was um, congratulated President-elect Biden on his victory, calling him president-elect, and yet also acknowledged that there are legal proceedings that need to take place, uh, and that President Trump, if he believes there to be irregularities, you know, is titled to pursue avenues of redress. Again, I believe they should only be pursued if they're done in good faith. I don't think you should file lawsuits if you don't think you have any merit to them. Uh, that That's not appropriate. And we can talk about how some of the law firms have been withdrawing from some of these cases because I think they realize that the obligation of an attorney is only to file things in good faith. But in any event, um, I've been, and, and, and we're still in the middle of this process as we record today, but I would like us still to get to the point of closure where, you know, without regard to President Trump, because I don't think it's in his nature to concede defeat, I think the Republican Party still has to acknowledge President-elect Biden's victory, not just as a matter of brute force that will happen on January 20th, but you know, at some moment, I, I think they need to say this was an authentic victory, that he actually got the votes, and that all these allegations of, of it being rigged or fraud are incorrect and should not be allowed to um, deny the truth of the matter. Uh, and because we're not quite there at that level of closure, I'm concerned. And I'm and with each passing day that it r remains in this kind of odd uh, status, um, I get more concerned. I definitely think your concerns are well-intentioned. And I agree um, that the fact our normal isn't enough in this situation. It's not enough 
that um, the networks have essentially called the race. Uh, I saw on Twitter today, a well-known poster say it's final. You know, Joe Biden has 306 electoral votes and, and Trump has 220 something. And so, and I, and I, when I saw that, I remember thinking, is it final, (laughs) you know, but, but I think it's a reflection of an earlier time, right? We are used to things kind of coming to an end by now. If in 2016, Hillary Clinton conceded, um, by, by Wednesday morning, I believe, you know, it was fairly early on. And so, um, even though, you know, her loss was, was quite the surprise for a large portion of the American population, she still recognized that she lost. Um, and so in some ways we are in unprecedented territory, but I, I do think that it may be worth, um, sort of gaming through worst case scenarios, because we've talked about this, uh, informally. I don't know if we've ever talked about it formally on our podcast about, um, what could happen here? Because a lot of attention has been given to the legal challenges and how many of them are frivolous. Um, and in fact, I think a judge today dismissed litigation in Michigan uh, that was seeking to have the certifi- certification deadline um, uh, uh, delayed. And so the, the courts have been doing a pretty good job of uh, sort of policing this, these lawsuits. Personally, I would like some sanctions. That will make me sleep better. I think that will go a long way towards uh, discouraging law firms from bringing this t- these types of lawsuits where they make allegations that are largely unsupported. Uh, but that's probably not going to happen given the stakes. Uh, uh, but it does raise question about the president's strategy here. He's losing in court. Um, so, so now, what do you what do you think he's hoping for? Why does he keep bringing these lawsuits? What is he hoping hoping on the political side? Because it seems to me it's very much a political case at this point. Um, so, so what do you think the strategy is? Yeah, um, I do think it's political. Um, you know, I, I'm not a psychologist, and I, you know, you know, I hate to sort of try to get inside his head or you know attempt to do that. Um, you know, I've, I've read some commentary that says you know it's not necessarily a rational strategy or, or or thought out. So don't try to impose you know rational order on just something that is not of that nature. Uh, I think that's an I, important I, disclaimer. Let me just say. <laughs> Um, you know, but I think, you know, um, I think I saw a clip of former President Obama saying he's more concerned by the other Republicans than he is about Trump. I mean, and, and I share that. In other words, if this was just um, the kind of idiosyncrasies of one individual, it would be much more innocuous. The fact that there is a movement that is doing this, I don't know how big it is, but this is, you know, there are talk radio hosts and there are other people who are going along with this, um, both in Congress and out of outside Congress. That And so, you know, the fact that there is a movement that is designed to undermine the the Biden victory uh, and delegitimate it in some sense. Are they just so, delaying the inevitable? You think, Ned? Yes. So here's here's how I I've been analyzing it. You tell me what you think of this. I I, I think there are th- analytically three distinct issues that are worth separating. The first one is: Is this strategy going to affect who is president on January twenty first? Of the of next year, I'm confident the answer is no. Biden will be president for four years, starting at noon on January 20th. Um, there may be some people in this movement who are are you know trying one last attempt to derail 
that in the hope that somehow they can manipulate the electoral college machinery to engineer a second term for President Trump. Um, and in fact, the New York Times had a report that on Wednesday, he sort of asked his staff whether that was possible. So I think there is some you know, desire on that part to see if they can't get that result, notwithstanding the popular vote and, and, and all of the votes that, that are lead to the conclusion that Biden won. Um, but I do not think that will be successful at all, and we can explore why. Um, you know, the, the other uh, issue, which is uh, to me less about our expertise of elections and more about the issue of governance, is the whole public conversation over the last week about the danger to the transition and, and national security and whether Biden gets the right kind of briefings and and, and those sorts of things. And, I, you know, I have to say I concern, I'm concerned about the state of American government and the extent that what's going on right now is going to hurt the capacity of governance. You know, that that's serious, but that's not specifically an electoral issue. Um, the third issue, I think, is another kind of an election re- issue, but it's it's broader than just who's going to hold office as a result of this election. It's the norms and culture again, of how we conduct elections in, in our democracy. And and I believe, that we've talked about this, I think, in the abstract, that the most important value is the value of fair play. Because, you know, you know our system is built for two-party competition. We've talked about that. Other democracies are more multi-party. Either way, it's got to be competitive. One-party rule is not a robust, vibrant democracy. And so, our system has to be built on the idea of taking turns and letting the voters to decide who gets a turn for this four years and then who gets the turn for the next four years. And what I think what we're witnessing right now is a serious erosion of this fair play value. Um, and that's long-term damage. And I think with each day that we have this kind of limbo status, that is a deterioration of this norm. And therefore, it's going to make it harder and harder to repair and restore this norm. Now, I hope that we can get to the point of repair and restoration soon and, and do a good job with it. Um, that's, again, not going to affect who's president, but it is going to affect the culture of how we do democracy. One thing that I'm struck by in your comments is about how much norms matter here just in terms of not only how we conduct our elections, but also in governance. That is such a problem. Because if anything, the last four years has taught us how easily norms are eroded. And it just really emphasized the point to me that we need more permanent changes to our system in order to ensure and protect that value of fair play. Um, I feel like we can do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> um, but but to the to the point about sort of the the problems with the election and the strategy being used here bleeding over into governance and making it difficult to govern. Um, I think part of that goes to this question of strategy. Uh, for the first few days after the election, I thought perhaps the lawsuits were about overturning the outcome of this election. Even if it you know, quickly became apparent that that wasn't happening to, to most people, um, I, I low-key believe that the president still thought that he had a chance. Now I'm starting to question whether that's even true. 
it seems to me, and I saw a report today, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, it might have been in a post about how he's talking about, you know, immediately announcing his intention to run for 2024. And so to some extent, I'm, I think that you know, no matter how much we complain about norms and no matter how much we complain about fair play, some of this is about just the raw pursuit of power. And I, and I honestly believe that he probably doesn't think that he has a chance of winning any of these lawsuits or becoming president. Because, I mean, honestly, I, <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, maybe this is really about getting Republican state legislators to try to appoint a new slate by calling the election into question. Um, but as you know, Ned, you know, there has to be a failure of the election. And that's very difficult to have in a circumstances where states are pretty much situated and headed towards certifying their election results. Um, but I don't, I don't even know if I think that anymore. I don't know if that was ever the strategy because, you know, that was floated in the weeks before the election, this possibility of Republican legislators, you know, replacing the slate with their own slate. Um, this may just be about him situating himself for 2024 and him fighting these battles in order to illustrate to his base that, you know, he's a fighter. This is what they like about him. This will help him stay at the head of the party. This is the other Republicans are falling in line, even though they know that he has no chance of being president in 2021. There's a real maybe fear amongst Republicans that he might have a fighting chance in 2024 and that there could be electoral repercussions for trying to um, push back against that. And so it's entirely possible that we're thinking about the wrong presidential election. But even more so, this speaks to the need for concrete changes to our system so that norms become formalized, right? Because it's there's just simply too much that is subject to the the, the shifting winds of politics. Um, and when we talk about voting rights and we talk about access and we talk about turnout and enfranchisement, those are core things that should not be subject to politics, but they far too often are. And so, you know, if, if we're in this for the long run, right, if he's, he, if he's planning to run again in 2024, Lord help us. Uh, but if he's planning to run again in 2024, I think as a society, we need to sit down and have a, a firm conversation, a, a fundamental conversation about who we are, right? Certain things should be off the table, <laughs> right? Like it's when we talk about the rules of the game, we need to get to a point in society where we have rules and there are certain things that political elites should not be able to do for partisan advantage, All right? I look at the last really seven years before Trump, like post Shelby County attempts to circumscribe the electorate to make voting harder as a warning sign about where we're headed. And if we are looking at this same situation in four years, potentially, then things may not get any better. So it's time to have a conversation about who we are as a democracy. And if we want to continue to be that we cannot continue to be governed by norms. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's going to be, be difficult. I mean, I, I, you know, I was struck over the when I heard that um, he was thinking about running in 2024, that you know, we have had once in American history, you know, a president who who won and lost and then won again. It's Grover Cleveland. This was in the in an era of high polarization during the Gilded Age, and as ugly as the politics were back then, you know, my analysis of that history it never got to the deterioration that we're seeing today in the sense that. Um, you know, when, when 
when Cleveland won first in 1884, the Republicans thought maybe that was fraudulent, and they took two weeks to investigate Tammany Hall in New York. But then they said, you know what? He actually won fair and square. We looked for the fraud. We couldn't find it. It was honest. He's entitled to govern not just because he got the power, but he deserved it. I mean, that you know, that's exactly how it's supposed to be, um, even if it takes two weeks to do that. And then when... When Harrison won in, in 1888, and there were some allegations of improprieties that year, um, but not enough to really affect the outcome, you know, Grover Cleveland didn't try to cling to power in the way that it seems to be going on right now. Instead, he exited gracefully, and then he, he came back and, and won in, in 1892. And Harrison likewise left. I mean, you leave the Oval Office when you lose. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, so, you know, I, I, I've been, I'm, you know, I, I think, you tell me, I, if we had had a president in office now who was norm attentive, but who thought that maybe they should pursue recounts, because obviously, you know, Al Gore was entitled to pursue his recounts. He was entitled to wait to give, you know, he retracted his concession that he gave um, on election night because the numbers were shifting and he was entitled to try to, to win in Florida. And then when he, it didn't work out, he gave a very gracious concession speech. So it's not obligatory in a close election to concede right away. Um, as you said, Hillary Clinton did the next morning and John Kerry did the next morning because, you know, um, I, I think, and clearly here this year, given the, the vote counting process, given vote by mail in the pandemic, you know, we weren't going to get these projections until the Saturday. Um, you know, I think if, if President Trump had announced on that Saturday saying, you know, I recognize, you know, I, I, I can see the numbers and I know what they're saying, but this these are still unofficial numbers and it looks like we're looking to a recount, so I, I simply want to announce that I acknowledge that my worthy opponent gave a good fight and is in the lead, and you know we'll see how this process plays out. That kind of more acknowledgement of of the reality of the situation, I, I think, would have been better for the public because it wouldn't have been, you know, like he claimed victory, Trump, when he had no basis for doing that. He was claiming fraud when he had no basis for doing that. He would, and, and so his response was not appropriate. I, I think there would, could have been a way f- to allow these recounts and procedures to go forward without sort of tearing down the basic norm of fair play. But that's not... not so can I come back to your question? So if we want to do... If we want to reinstate this, how do we do it by rules? How do we... Um, how do we demand of our politicians that they do act properly unless we have something that is written in law and more formalized we are always subject to whoever holds the office um because i do think i i think i agree 100 percent that our conversation around this will be completely different but for his rhetoric georgia and north carolina just got called today right what if he came out today and said you know what this thing is over but he's not going to do that right and instead he you know decides on Twitter to determine for himself what states they want. Um, I also think that our conversation will be different 
um, and more focused on the facts on the ground as opposed to the days that have passed. Um, if, for example, uh, President-elect Biden and President Trump were separated in Pennsylvania by 537 votes like Bush and Gore in 2000, right? Like there's literally, there's no narrative you can tell to support the rhetoric. And so that is why our norms are under attack. Um, and I and I just believe we'll always be in this position, just subject to whoever whoever holds office, because there's there's no legal constraint really. Norms used to be so much more constrained, and it's it's really remarkable when you think about it and looking at the history. Um, Ulysses S. Grant was talking about running for a third term, right? But he would have been the first to kind of go against um, George Washington's norm of serving two terms in office. And so he decided not to in some ways. So it's, it norms really were, you know, important in a way they just simply are not anymore. I don't know how to get back to that. Um, I don't know if we could ever get back to that. I suspect we can, but I think it would take a succession of presidents who are norm attentive. It, it, it's not even going to be enough in my view for Biden to be norm attentive. If Trump wins again in 2024, then all of a, a sudden we are in a situation where norms are under assault again. But if we have a succession of presidents who are respectful of norms, then I do think we can probably get back there. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a important, an important point. I think the, 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 the situation of repair is going to be ongoing and it's going to be not just, I think, our elite politicians, although that's important. I think, you know, somehow we as citizens have to get back to it. I, I, you know, we, we, we the, the, the norm of fair play has to exist both at the level of the incumbents and the elites, but it also has to be among us. We, we, we have to be willing to hold those politicians to account, I, I think. Um, you, know, that, I, you know, that's what I... Because I don't think, I think, I think there are many Republican members of the U.S. Senate who would not be doing what they're doing this week, but for the fact that Trump has a hold on his base, right? It's not just Trump himself. It's Trump's capacity to influence a significant segment of the American people. And... And, you know, I don't know what to do about about that. How do we, I mean, again, I don't want to belittle anybody. I, again, I want to, I mean, again, in a democracy, you've got to believe we're all in this mm-hmm. together. But, you know, the the problem with voter suppression and the pr- problem of a lack of willingness to f- play fair is not just the elite incumbents. It's that there are pockets of our population who don't want to play fair either. And that, and that really, really worries me. It, one thing that comes to mind, Ned, in light of, of your comment, the fact that there are portions of the population that are not invested in fair play, there are political elites who are not invested, is really a question of when does our luck run out? <laughs> right? Because it's not like this is unique to American history. Anytime that there is high polarization, which there has been in our history, um, in some ways, the, the post-1965 Voting Rights Act era where you saw um, massive enfranchisement, um, you saw more uh, people of color elected to office, you saw really a, a changing politics. In some ways, it's the exception rather than the rule. Uh, probably the closest parallel is Reconstruction, right? But for the most part in American history, we've had a pretty narrow electorate. We've had 
um, contentious elections. We've had polarization. We've had all of these things that have um, given us a run for our money on the claim that we are a democracy. I'll put it that way. Um, and, and I think part of the reason that some of us are in mourning, and, and honestly, I do feel like I am in mourning sometimes when I think about the state of our democracy is because we got spoiled. You know, we saw all of the promise and potential of the last 50 years and the, where we are now just seems so far from that. Um, but that being said, I do think that we can get back there. It just, it, like you said, it'll take a lot of work. Um, but I don't think that we should assume that we will get back there. And I think that's the disconnect. I think, you know, even sometimes legal scholars assume that, you know, at some point things will get better on the democracy front. It does not have to. <laughs> we are the the oldest democracy in the world. Uh, we have the oldest constitution in the world. Um, and, you know, d historically, democracies don't last as long. Um, you know, they it, it wouldn't be surprising if we're actually on a decline that we never recover from. Um, so I'm saying all of that not to, you know, be gloom and doom, but to just, you know, say we have to be vigilant about protecting this if we care about it. And we can't assume that things will just get back to normal. We actually have to work for it and fight for it. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, that's why I'm so disheartened by the Republican Party and falling behind Trump and these efforts to try to delegitimize the election. Because I think they are part of the segment of the population that assumes that American democracy will survive, even if they recognize that Trump's r rhetoric is corrosive. They think that we'll get past it um, and that the pursuit of power now is worth it. Right. They would rather govern and, and and have power and not think about the long term damage of Trump's rhetoric uh, because they assume that America is inevitable. And the reality is that we're not and that this is something that we have to fight for and we have to be vigilant about. So, yes. Can I say two two things in the second one? I hope will be a little bit more positive. The, the, the first thing, do, when will our luck run out? I think you put your finger on a really important point, which is that if Given what we're seeing now this week, if the facts uh, in terms of the numbers had been just a little bit different, we could be in, in the really scary scenario that I was worried about pre-election day. You know, Hayes-Tilden-like repetition in terms of all-out contestation going to Congress and going towards Inauguration Day. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're going there precisely because nothing is Florida close 537 votes. Um, and the process was sufficiently well run, very, you know, that it just, again, it, it, it seems laughable to try to, to, to say that somehow Michigan didn't get called correctly when it's a, you know, 140,000 vote margin, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so the attempt, I do think we're, we are seeing, you know, you asked me what the strategy is. I think part of the strategy is an attempt to try to to make a Hayes-Tilden type run for this, namely to, to use the mechanics of the Electoral College process to see if if you can't somehow capture the flag uh, or capture the prize. But, but, but it's not going to work given the facts. But the, if the facts have been adjusted a little bit, I think there's dangerous that it, danger that it might have worked. So that so I think this was a very very close run thing in that sense, given the fragility of our of our norms. Um, but uh, but on the more positive note, as disappointed as I am and was in the collective 
establishment of the Republican Party in the U.S. Senate this week, but for a handful that went the other way. I haven't lost hope completely because I think, again, a lot of the statements were very, very careful, including Senator McConnell's, which I listened to very carefully on C-SPAN. Um, McConnell has given Trump a green light to litigate and to refuse to say the word president-elect or concede and all of that kind of stuff, all true. But he has never uttered a repetition of, of Trump's claim of fraud. Right. He simply said, you know, Trump can try to prove irregularities and he use, use the word irregularities if Trump believes them to be existing. He is not unlike, you know, T Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz did mouth sort of Trumpian words that the process was stolen or I can't remember exactly what Cruz said, but they he Cruz condemned the situation and the result in a way that echoed President Trump. That's not what McConnell did. In fact, the, the line in McConnell's speech that I thought was most important was McConnell saying, Democrats should have nothing to fear from letting the process take its rule of law course. Because if, if Democrats are correct as to what the result will be, then the result will be that result and they'll be happy and satisfied. I thought that was an important signal that McConnell is intending to handle his own leadership of his caucus by saying we're going to do this in a rule of law way. So we're not going to get ahead of the legal system by congratulating anybody or doing what President Bush did, which I thought was the right kind of statement. But but McConnell didn't attack the result. He just didn't congratulate the result. And he he also did signal that if that's how the rule of law result ends up, the the suggestion was that he's going to recognize that. So, you know, again, I, I've, you know, ever since the impeachment trial in the Senate, I've focused on Senator Lamar Alexander's statement of an explanation of why he voted to acquit, despite his recognition of the impropriety that President Trump engaged in in the Ukraine phone call to try to manipulate the election. And Senator Lamar Alexander said the reason for the acquittal is we're going to let the people decide, right? The people are going to render a verdict in the November election as to what, who's going to win that election and take office in January. And it seemed to me fundamentally important that if there is honesty in this regard, that that has that principle has to hold true. Namely, there has to be a recognition of what the people decide. And if, if the, again, and, and it's, but it's appropriate to make that an official determination. But, but, but once the official judgment is made that the people decided and the people chose Biden using the processes that we have, if collectively the Republican Party in the Senate doesn't acknowledge that, that will be a betrayal. That will be a serious betrayal of the basic values. But they haven't gone that far yet. And if, they, if once there is this official determination of what the people decided, they acknowledge that, embrace that, congratulate Biden based on that, and, and, and say that 
The people chose Biden and we respect that. If they can get themselves to utter those words, then I think we're in the process of reinvigorating the norm. If, if they don't do that and they since said, well, I guess we're going to have to acknowledge that Biden's going to take office because we can't stop it, but we, we're agnostic on whether he really won or not, that's the betrayal. So uh, in, the short, in the relatively short term, I think it's still really important what the Republicans in the Senate say once we get official certifications and official results. I would love to end on that positive note. Like, I, so I agree, but I just, I don't know. It's a struggle for me because I just, I, I really hate the selective use of elections to validate official decisions. Um, so, for example, with respect to uh, Lamar Alexander's comments, we have an impeachment process for a reason. It is not, it does not hinge on the outcome of an election. It's a political process where if members of Congress think that the president has overstepped, they are in, the House is entitled to impeach him, and the Senate can convict if they agree, right? And so in some ways it's been used as kind of like a cop-out to avoid making the hard decisions that the Constitution tasks these individuals with making. Same thing with the Supreme Court process, right? Confirmation process. They took a totally different view of Justice Barrett's confirmation than they did with respect to Merrick Garland. Um, and in part, it was the selective use of this, uh, using elections to validate certain decisions in order to avoid making the hard decision that can upset your base. Um, and so, yes, I, I get the importance of them eventually coming out and saying, you know, President-elect Joe Biden won this election. But honestly, this is something they could have said a week ago. Everybody knew that this litigation was trash. <laughs> we knew it. You know, um, and it's just become more and more of a reach with passing days. But that doesn't mean with, after the, the election that, you know, the, the litigation was credible. It never really was credible. They filed lawsuits without any evidence. <laughs> um, and if anything, they, you know, subsequent filings only revealed that they were searching for a legal strategy as opposed to shedding light on the merits of any of, uh, any of the particular claims. And so I'm saying all of this to say that we've lowered the bar so much with respect to the actions of political elites and their responsibilities to to we the people right um they have an obligation to all of us not just the people who vote for them not just the base not just donald trump not just you know the media not like what about the rest of us right the everybody has an investment in making sure that the system works everybody wants to believe that it works people are afraid and concerned about what could happen before january 20th um, and so their failure to just come out and state what's obvious, it really is a dereliction of their duties in a way that it, you know, to me is unforgivable. Even if they later say, you know, hey, Joe Biden won, they could have did that a while ago. Better late, late than never, I guess, is what I would say in part. Yeah. Um, how do you understand the psych? I mean, we're lawyers, we're we're law professors, we're not you know, we don't have PhDs in social or political or moral psychology, but but how do we understand the mindset of somebody like a, a Senator Cruz when he utters words that you and I think lack any reference to reality or evidence base? And, you know, again, it, it's one thing to discount President Trump because he's had such a problematic relationship 
with reality over a long period of time. But in fact, Senator Cruz, when he was an opponent of President Trump in the 2016 primaries, referred to Trump as a pathological liar, I think was, mm-hmm. was Cruz's term, and said, you know, we have to worry about this. And, and, and so I've always thought that Senator Cruz had a, you know, a, a, a more cognitively appropriate relationship to truth, <laughs> uh, whether I agreed with his politics or not. And yet, insofar as he's <coughs> condemned this particular election as fraudulent and, and, and so forth, I don't have his statement right in front of me, you know, the, it, it feels full Trumpian in a way that, that, that I'm surprised. And, and so what, what's going on inside? I mean, is, does he disbelieve his own words just because, you know, it, he's an incumbent politician who's worried about his own base and, and ends just, does he, or, or, I mean, how do we understand the pathology of this situation? I think he's running for president, right? So, you know, the, the so the, the downside for Republicans in all of this is if Trump comes out and says, I'm running for president in 2024, he makes it really difficult for any other aspirants to, you know, try to lay claim to the office. Um, but if there's some possibility that something can happen that kind of pulls the wind out of his sails going into the 2024 election, I think that there is a cadre of Republicans who sort of envision themselves as his successor. Um, Ted Cruz is one of those people. Um, and so I do think that he's different from Trump in a sense that I think his statements are more deliberate and intentional, even if not truthful. I think he's saying them for a reason. Um, whereas I do think that Trump may have his reasons, but you know, it's hard for me to understand the rationality behind a lot of his behavior. Whereas as Ted Cruz, even if I don't agree with it, and even if it just seems opportunistic to me, I get it. Because I just think he's being like purely political and thinking about his own future in the party. Um, but that comes back to my concern that I, I don't want to um, let him off the hook. Right. But but he's, if, if that analysis is correct, he's doing that because there are conditions within the body politic as a whole for which that's, um, you know, a salient strategy. I mean, you know, again, I, I don't know that I necessarily want to equate everything in the moment to McCarthyism, and that's always a dangerous term. But but, but again, we, I think we the people have to police ourselves to some extent. We can't Oh, I don't get... disagree. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think that um, some segments of the population should also be indicted along with our political, <laughs> our, 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 the political elites who are um, sort of doing, engaging in behaviors that are corrosive to our democracy. We, the people, are also responsible for some of that, right? They are responding to us. Um, and so this is going to take some introspection. It's not just about how do we formalize the norms that used to govern us that tended towards fair play and democracy. It's also about how do we um, root out those elements within the electorate itself that lends itself to authoritarianism. Right. <laughs> um, and that's a that's a tough that's like a let's sit around a dinner table and have a come to Jesus moment conversation. <laughs> Are we ready for that? I don't know. Yeah. No. I uh, well. Let's. We should probably stop there um, and maybe just to kind of wrap it up. That you know the good news is is we dodged the proverbial bullet. Mm-hmm. You know we are. 
our luck did not run out this time, I think is fair to say. Um, uh, and, uh, and that, and that the conditions do allow for that soul searching. We need soul searching, but we, we are going to have the space in which to engage in it, I think is. And so, um, let's, let's, let's be grateful for small mercies and take yes. what we can get. Absolutely. And, and then, uh, and then steal ourselves for the long, hard work of repairing the norm. Yeah. Agreed. Let's leave it there. Cause I like that positive note. I always come in on the back end with something dark. So <laughs> let's, let's work towards repairing the norm. Work towards repairing the norm. All right. Well, great to see you and looking forward to next time. Absolutely. Take care, Ned. Bye-bye. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.